You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Today my guest is Ron Olive, and he will be talking about a spy case that almost no one has forgotten, Jonathan Pollard. Uh, Pollard was a, a very headline-capturing case. Uh, it went on for some time, and of course, as, as many of you know, uh, listeners, he remains in prison, and even that has been a subject of controversy. Uh, Ron Olive uh, is the author of a book called Capturing Jonathan Pollard, and it came out uh, just this past October, published by the Naval Institute Press. It is a fascinating account of actually uh, observing Jonathan Pollard in action as a spy, and we very, very seldom have had that, and also the actual apprehension of Pollard for espionage. So before going on uh, too much longer here myself, Ron, I wonder if you could just give us some background about yourself and how you came to be involved in the Pollard case. Sure. I'd be happy to do that, Peter. And uh, by the way, thank you for having me on your spy cast. Delighted Very to exciting. Have you At the time when this case broke in November of 1985, I was the assistant special agent in charge for counterintelligence at the Washington Field Office of the Naval Investigative Service. Now it's called the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS. And uh, in mid-November, we received word that a co-worker had spotted Pollard going out of the building with what the co-worker believed to be top-secret material at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday evening. It was very unusual and very disturbing to him. He reported to a supervisor, and his supervisor took action. And because uh, I was the assistant special agent in charge, the investigation fell upon me to conduct. Let me just ask you, that's a, an interesting account um, and a very, a very tight narrative for what I'm sure uh, was a very intense period evolving over a period of time. One question I had is you mentioned that a co-worker noticed this. I'd, I'd be interested in the circumstances of that. What, what did the co-worker actually see? And let me also ask you, did you know Pollard or know of Pollard at the time this was all brought to your attention? 
Okay, for your first question, uh, here's what happened with the coworker. Pollard had retrieved material from a special communication center, top secret material from the center which was downstairs from the anti-terrorist alert center where he worked, which just happened to be in the NIS headquarters. We controlled this anti-terrorist alert center with the acronym of ATAC. He came back upstairs and it was a manila envelope taped like you would tape top secret material. And on the outside was unclassified titles of this top secret material. He starts waving it around, saying, oh, look what I did. I made a mistake. I didn't want any of these documents. Now I have to go downstairs and shred them under the two-man rule of shredding top secret material. A co-worker overheard him, didn't think anything of it, walked outside, crossed the street from our headquarters, got in his car, and all of a sudden, he sees Pollard's wife pull up in their private vehicle. Remember now, this is Friday night at 5 o'clock. Pollard comes down the steps with the same envelope in his hand. The individual knew that it contained top-secret material. He gets in his car with his wife and takes off. Okay. Now, let me just ask you. I know we have a number of listeners in the Washington area. Where was this? What, where are we talking about? What building? Can you, I mean, can you identify the, yes, the location? Yes, the, bu the building was in Suitland, Maryland. It was on the federal compound there. Uh, actually, the building no longer exists to this day, but it was a Naval Intelligence Command called Nick One Building, which uh -huh. they tore down several years ago. Okay. Ron, you mentioned uh, the two-man rule. Uh, you and I, of course, are familiar with that, but many of the listeners may not be. What is, what is the two-man rule? The two-man rule is when you have top-secret or sensitive compartmented information uh, uh, documents that need to be destroyed that are especially sensitive, when those documents are destroyed, you have to have two people present. And they just destroy the documents together. Then they both have to sign a sheet, what documents they destroyed, the date they destroyed it, and the exact time. And that's how they keep track of the destroyed top-secret material. So, so part of what you're telling me, and I don't want to take us too much into the weeds, but part of what you're telling me is that the documents in that envelope were highly controlled documents. There weren't multiple I mean, those documents, once they were destroyed, those were the single existing copies or the one of only a limited number of copies? One of only a limited uh, copy. And when, when Pollard went downstairs to get these documents, he had to literally sign for the documents. So... They knew that Pollard had these documents with these titles, and that's how they controlled that. Okay. So the, the, uh, the co-worker uh, witnessed Pollard coming down with what he looked to be the same envelope containing the documents, and then the, the co-worker reported that to his or her supervisor. That's correct. Who then came to you, to your office? He, he called the uh, uh, assistant director for counterintelligence of NIS. Literally, it was a three-day weekend. And it was Friday evening when the coworker called him. He did a little cursory search to see if the package might have been there or he tore it up and threw it in the waste can and did something or maybe put the documents in his drawer or something. But anyway, he couldn't find anything. So he goes home. That next Saturday morning at 3 a.m., he could not sleep. He was so upset over this. He goes back into work, gets there at 6 o'clock. He goes downstairs, one of the things he does, to the Special Communications Center and asks this Navy uh, individual who is working the desk to give him a printout 
of everything that Pollard had retrieved from that special top-secret communication center in the last six months. And when he did, his mouth just fell open. He couldn't believe it. Pollard was working uh, what they called at that time the America's Desk, which included domestic terrorism in the U.S., the Caribbean, South America. Everything Pollard had pulled out had to deal with the Soviet Union or the Middle East. Nothing with what his responsibility was. And that's on that same Saturday, he calls the assistant director of NIS for counterintelligence, says, I need to talk to you. I think we have a problem. He goes to his house, tells him, and when I got back to work, case started. So the, so the supervisor, once he saw that uh, list of documents, I mean, can you give me a, just to get, was it several hundred? Was it... Uh, uh, Num I, mean, it I, I don't know what the number was, but okay. the, the length of it was incredible. He could not believe the, the quantity and the quality of this information he was getting that had nothing to do with his assignment. He then, uh, obviously very conscientious, he then uh, re reported that to the deputy, your dep the deputy director of counterintelligence. Right. And then so when you came back in, what, you came back in on, on Monday then? This was yeah, after the weekend? Yeah, it was a weekend. Tuesday. It was, a, it was Veterans Day. So it was Monday. So Veterans I didn't find Day. out about it. And uh, can you sort of summarize the ensuing developments? What happened then? Sounds like the start. Well, we really didn't know what yeah. we had. All we had was somebody walking out of there. So eventually uh, what occurred is they had a meeting with the FBI. They decided to open up a preliminary investigation. We wound up calling Pollard in to just interview him. Uh, he had ordered another package uh, on a Monday, which was around the uh, the 18th of November. Let me just do it very quickly. When you say he ordered another package, you mean Pollard had ordered more documents? From the Special Communications Center. How was Pollard able to order up, as it were, documents, a package as you called it, which were not under his purview, which had nothing to do with what he was assigned to uh, in the office? Two things there. He had the ability from his computer to order information from the Special Intelligence Center downstairs, but that's not the only place he got it from. He, he had what they call a courier card with a top-secret clearance. This courier card allowed him to retrieve documents from most of the intelligence agencies uh, in Washington, D.C. He could walk in, for instance, to the Defense Intelligence Agency, go up into their top-secret sensitive intelligence library, gather documents, put them in a briefcase, s sign a sheet without them ever looking at it or knowing what it is, walk out the door. Because with a courier card, it allows you to leave a sensitive building without being searched. They assume that you have a need to know, and that's part of the trust when you get a top secret clearance. Uh, it's like an honor system. You know, you're you're expected at that time to honor what you have. It's a privilege to have a top-secret clearance. And that is the sad thing about this case, Peter. Very sad. Because not only did the Navy have the chance to fire Pollard long before he started spying for Israel, but almost every intelligence-gathering agency in Washington, D.C. failed to follow the rule of the need to know Nobody, but nobody, ever asked him 
what is it that you have? Or, better yet, give me an example with the Raisin Manual uh, that belonged to the National Security Agency, one of the most sensitive documents that this country held at the time on our intelligence collection capabilities. No one thought to call the Anti-Terrorist Alert Center and talk to his boss and say, listen, there's this guy, Jonathan Pollard, who works for you, and he wants this manual, this very sensitive manual. Does he have authority to do this? If all they had to do was make a phone call, and that would have been it. Nobody ever did for 18 months. He ravaged the intelligence community, top-secret documents, and passed them on to, to Israel. On, on uh, Moving ahead a little bit, but on what order of magnitude? What, what set of I mean, did he... T- did he take a number of manila envelopes and, and deliver those? Or, I mean, what sort of volume or quantity are we talking about? Well, the volume we're talking about is overwhelming. No other spy in the history of this country, whether they were spying for an adversary or an ally, stole the quantity and quality of documents that Pollard did within an 18-month period. The damage assessment could have proven in court he stole 360 cubic feet of highly sensitive documents, which would equate to stacking them up, if you stack them up in single sheets, six foot wide, 10 feet long, stack six feet high. And when Pollard was approached, because he had pled guilty and was cooperating with the government, when he was approached with that figure and said, this is what we're going to be able to prove in court, what do you have to say? Pollard told him, that's about right. We'll be right back after this. Let me, that, that is staggering, just absolutely staggering. Let me, if I can, just take you back if, uh, to the narrative. And you said that you all, uh, based on what the supervisor had reported, called Pollard in for an interview. Isn't that correct? That's yes. correct. Yeah. And what, what happened at that point? What happened at that point... Uh, Two FBI agents and one of my agents uh, started interviewing him. He would not come in on anything. Uh, we, wondered, we wanted to know where he was going with the documents that he had that night. And he just kept making excuses. Then about two hours into the interview, a strange thing occurred. The FBI had left the interview room to call their supervisor, and my agent was in the room. He asked to call his wife, and the agent allowed him to. So he calls his wife and starts telling her that, honey, uh, I'm going to be late. I'm working late. Go ahead and go to dinner with the neighbors. And, oh, by the way, take over the cactus plant that we bought for her birthday. So my agent comes out and said, you know, that sounds a little strange, Ron. She told me, she said, you know, it sounded like a code word. And sure enough, it was. And let me tell you why, Peter. Pollard knew that from January 1st of 1985 until November 1st of 1985, there were 10 spies already arrested. That included Michael Walker and, and uh, the family spy ring there. He was scared to death that he was going to be caught. So the Sunday before, we, we pulled him in and interviewed him on a Monday. That Sunday night... Pollard tells his wife, if I ever use the word to you, 
cactus in any content, you know I am in trouble. Get a hold of my handler and get rid of the documents out of the apartment. And that was the code word to alert his wife to remove the documents, 70 pounds of which in a suitcase she removed. I know, and I'd like to get to uh, the story of what happened to those documents. Let me go back and just ask one question here. Um, when you mentioned that, the, uh, that your uh, agent, your employee, said, I believe, in talking to his wife, he mentioned cactus sounded like a code word. I take it he or she was monitoring the phone call that he made. She was monitoring it, but only from his side. Only from his side. And she could only hear what he was saying. Of course, she couldn't hear what what his wife was saying, but just the mere fact that he said, take the cactus. And I mean, I'm from Arizona. I mean, you could maybe expect a cactus, but you know, Washington DC <laughs> sounded strange to her too. And it did to me also. A cactus. Okay. Um, the other question I had was, uh, I'm assuming this interview, now this interview took place on Tuesday, I believe. Because you said that it was Veterans Day, and so this was... Well, this was a week later. This was a week later. This was a week okay. later, and that interview took place on, on a Monday. Uh, he allowed us a permissive search. We went to his apartment, found 13 sensitive top-secret documents and about 57 secret code word documents. I told him he needed to come in for a polygraph the next day. So he said, okay. He was supposed to come in at 10.30. This is on Tuesday now. And... He calls me and says, Ron, I can't come in for, for the polygraph. I'm too tired because we didn't get out of his apartment till 1. To make a long story short, in me trying to convince him that he needs to do this, because now we had him on something. We had him for unauthorized possession of classified. So we did have something. He tells me on the phone, Ron, I can pass the polygraph if they only ask me about the Soviet Union or the bloc countries. Well, when he said that, you know, you get this gut feeling uh, in your stomach or your hair stands up. Oh, wait a minute. This something is wrong. I mean, really wrong. I'm thinking this to myself. I convinced him to come in. When he came in, I met him at the door. He said, Ron, I need to talk to you before we take a polygraph. So we go into a room one-on-one -on -one, and... About three hours later, he had confessed the entire story to me, making $2,500 a month, trips overseas, giving away thousands of classified material, but he said he was giving them to a CBS reporter for Afghanistan. So, so now the FBI came in. We finished interviewing him. Then on that following Thursday, we interviewed him again on Wednesday, but to make this shorter, on that Thursday... Him and his wife got in their vehicle and went into the Israeli embassy. Came out, the FBI arrested him. And just as a funny aside here, it's not funny, but it gives you sort of a feeling of where Pollard was in his mind. You would think that if someone is arrested by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, leaving an embassy, he's arrested for espionage, he's going to be meek and mild, maybe crying, he's handcuffed. Shoulders, not, not Jonathan Pollard. The first words out of his mouth when the friend who I know with the FBI put him in the back seat, he said, you botched it, didn't you? You thought this was a Soviet or Soviet bloc operation, didn't you? Just as sarcastic as can be. 
And so when I interviewed him for the last time before he was taken in front of the magistrate, he was exactly that way, sarcastic, cocky, and arrogant. Ron, you've mentioned uh, an exciting narrative. You've mentioned uh, several times you interviewed uh, Pollard, or he came in for an interview. Um, those, I take it, were, in effect, voluntary interviews. That is, he was not he was an employee, of course. Yes. But they were not coercive. He was, no. he was asked to come in he was asked to, to be interviewed. Everything was voluntary. Mm-hmm. Now, on the, last, on the last one that we did uh, on that uh, Tuesday when he came in for the polygraph, before I started talking to him, uh, I realized we already, had, we already had something on him. He was illegally in possession of highly classified information. So I felt it imperative that I had advised him of his rights. So I'm scrambling. I didn't know what he wanted to talk about. I'm scrambling. So I did advise him of his rights for him, and he signed him and freely spoke to me. Did you have a sense then... Uh, of motive. I, I know he uh, came across to many of you as, as, a, as a rather complex, if not almost confusing personality, but did you get a sense of motive in those discussions with him? Yes, I did get a sense of motive. And even more of this came out later on when we really, after, uh, after he pled guilty and everything, but I can tell you, uh, he, he did, you have to give it to Pollard, he did have ideology involved with Israel. He felt that the United States wasn't treating them fairly. They weren't giving them enough of the right classified information. But you cannot rule out greed because Pollard himself admitted that he was consumed by money. He was addicted to it. He asked for pay raises. Uh, They were going to give him $30,000 a year to be put in a Swiss bank account for 10 years. So Money was involved. And what makes this point really strong is, is after he pled guilty and, the, and the, the background investigation started, an individual, before he ever even met an Israeli intelligence officer, tried to recruit one of his college friends. And in that recruitment attempt, him and his wife were there in his apartment in Washington, D.C., and when the friend said, how much is in it for me, meaning money, Pollard said probably $2,500 to $3,000. And they were belittling him because of the furniture that he had. And you can live better than this. You can have a better lifestyle. Well, the friend turned him down. But to me and law enforcement agents, when something like that starts, even before you meet your handler, you have to assume that, yes, money is involved. And let me tell you this, Peter, and you already know this. The three biggest things that are the motive for spies, whether ally or for an adversary, is greed, revenge, and disgruntlement. It's the three top, I might add to you, it's the three top, not only in in, uh, espionage cases, uh, the foreign government, but it's also the motive for corporate America and our national economy secrets. The same top three. Same top three. Well, and, and of course, in Pollard's case, uh, we know, subsequently, we now know, that he, in fact, had sought to spy for other governments before he spied for Israel. Isn't that correct? Yes, sir. That's right, Peter. You're absolutely right. Uh, when he had two months on the job, two months, mind you, he had a waiver for a top-secret clearance. 
he was handling the uh, South Atlantic and merchant, Soviet merchant ships going uh, through the South Atlantic. The American intelligence community and most of the free world at that time had cut off South Africa because of apartheid and the atrocities that went along with it. So Pollard approaches a civilian deputy at the command he was working with, tells him he's having trouble do this, doing uh, uh, his uh, analysis of Soviet ship movements, and he said, my father worked for the CIA as the station chief in South Africa. And he said, I have, which was a blatant lie. But he did say he had a naval attache at the South African embassy that he did know, which that was true. And he wanted to work a back-channel collection operation. Well, this civilian who's really experienced goes to the commanding officer who is a captain and says, you know, we need to fire Pollard because uh, I understand that a lot of people are saying he's a genius when it comes to analytical capabilities, but there's another side to him. The Navy failed to fire Pollard, and that's what allowed him to continue. And because it wasn't going fast enough, unauthorized, without authorization, he stole secret material and passed it to the South African government at their embassy in Washington, D.C. Besides that, he passed information to an Australian Navy officer without authorization. He passed classified information to his financial advisors, some people that had nothing to do with the United States government, in the belief that he could win their favor over when he got out of the Navy, that they would help him by giving, because he had given them political and economic information on foreign countries. My recollection also, and I think uh, you mentioned this in your book, that even before Pollard was hired, uh, by the naval investigator by the Navy, he had been rejected for employment by at least one other intelligence agency for cause, and yet that information was not shared with the Navy. Wasn't that correct? That's right, Peter. Uh, we later found out when we were doing the background after he pled guilty that in 1978 he had applied for the Central Intelligence Agency. Well, Pollard didn't know you had to take a polygraph with them, so when he was called in for an interview. Uh, the CIA does not only counterintelligence, but lifestyle polygraphs. Of course, he could get through counterintelligence because he did, he's never seen a secret document in his life. So that was a piece of cake. But when it came to drug use, uh, and they asked him about it, he said, oh, yes, I used uh, hashish and Thai sticks only one time, though. So when they asked him, well, what about marijuana? Because at that time, 78, that was a big thing. Well, I used it occasionally, you know, experimental-like. Well, when the polygraph operator asked, well, Jonathan, what do you mean by occasionally? And when he said 600 times, that was enough to not go any further in the hiring process. And then not only did he do that, but he told, I think it was nine foreign nationals that he was in the process of being hired by the CIA. Two things that you don't do. Drugs and start telling foreign nationals who you're being hired with. <laughs> But that, but my uh, my recollection was that was not shared. At that the time, was, he shopped his uh, resume with the Navy. And that, what is so sad, it's so sad about this case because when the Defense Investigative Service, who was doing backgrounds, because Pollard was a civilian analyst, they called the FBI. No, the FBI didn't hear, never heard of him. State Department, no. 
when they called the personnel department from the Central Intelligence Agency. Do you know Pollard or has he ever applied for a job with you? Instead of them saying yes, he did, but this is why we didn't hire him, they said we never heard of him. If the Central Intelligence Agency, and they were wrong, by the way, they, they had misinterpreted their policies. If they would have told the Navy just the fact about the marijuana alone, Pollard would never be in the spy books today. He never would have made it in there. And that's one of the sad things, Peter, about this case, because it, what, it's what happens when the security of our country when the rules, regulations, and policies are misunderstood, when they're misinterpreted, when they're circumvented, or just plain ignored or bent, all of those things combined cause Jonathan Pollard to ravage this nation's highest classification of our national security. Well, you tell a very discouraging story. I want to ask you a last question, and that is, um, I did say that I did want to come back to uh, what the outcome was of his warning his wife with the code word cactus. What was the outcome of that? What, what, in, what in effect did she do uh, when, she got, when she got the word cactus over the phone? She started gathering up all the documents, throwing them into a suitcase, and uh, she was pulling them down the steps into the alleyway. She was going to get rid of them, and all of a sudden she sees the FBI, or what she believed to be the FBI, in the alleyway. So she believed, oh, my gosh, the FBI is on to me, when the FBI didn't have a clue who she was. And so she goes to the neighbor's house, almost crying, that, uh, admitting to her, oh, my husband, Jonathan, we had all this classified information. We were going to burn it. We didn't get a chance. We think they're on to us. Will you help us hide it? To make a long story short, uh, the, the person that, that she spoke with, uh, the wife of, of a gentleman who was going to help her take him to a hotel to meet, which didn't work out. The next day, because his, Pollard's wife never came back to get the documents, she just left them there. So she calls her father and says, Daddy, you know, here's what happened. Told him the story. She's got this suitcase supposedly full of a lot of classified information. What do I do with it? The father just happened to be, as a twist of fate, uh, an officer in Norfolk, Virginia, and when she said he told her to call NIS right now. And that was really the beginning of the quick downfall of the Pollards, and it was only a couple of days, and they were both under arrest. Uh, uh, an extraordinary set of, of coincidences and circumstances. I re recall you told me uh, that when she th saw in the alley what she thought was the FBI, it was in fact the FBI, but they were there in a totally unrelated case. I mean, she was, she was, she was startled for the, for the right reason. It was the FBI, but uh, it wasn't that they didn't know who she was or what she was up to. They weren't interested in her. They were there for a, a totally different case. That's right, Peter, and it's another sort of twist of fate, but when uh, Vitaly Yurchenko defected to the United States, he came in on a couple of spies, and one of them was Edward, Edward Howard, with NSA, and the other one was, I mean, with, excuse me, uh, Edward Howard was with the CIA, and there was this guy named Ronald Pelton who worked for the National Security Agency. Well, come to find out that 
It was the FBI, Peter, in that alleyway, but they were surveilling Ronald Pelton, the spy from NSA, NSA, who lived with his girlfriend not two blocks away. So that the FBI that were in the alley that night was on the peripheral uh, surveillance team on the on the outside there, uh, under surveillance of, of Pelton. Ron, it's a it's a fascinating but but sad story, and I know what you have told told us today uh, is very much contained in your book in this terrific narrative. So it's capturing Jonathan Pollard by Ron Olive, and it's put out by the Naval Institute Press, and if you want to know more about the details, I urge you to read it. Thank you very much, Ron, for being with us. Well, thank you, Peter, uh, for having me. I'm honored and privileged to be on your SpyCast program. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.